Um, we, I, you know, this time of year at Thanksgiving, we often talk about gratitude as a spiritual discipline. And, and it really is. It's a critical one. It, it's, it's vital to how we perceive the world, how we feel about our Lord, and how we, how we relate to God. Today, this year, I want to do something a little different. I want to talk about something for which of the greatest things that we can be thankful for, and that is our Father in heaven. You know, compliments from certain people, they mean, they have a different value to us who they come from. If someone compliments you and uh, say, for instance, they want something, you don't think much of that. They'll say, oh, you look nice today, and you know they're going to ask you something. You think, all right, you buttered me up. What do you want? Like, we know what they're doing. I've also noticed that a person, if they have really high standards, they're difficult to please, that person's compliments often mean more. Uh, I watched The Great British Bake Off. Anybody else watch that with me? Yeah? Don't you love the new season, the contestants this year? Um, But there's two judges. One is more severe, more critical. It's Paul. Paul is the more critical judge. And when he compliments baking, you can tell the bakers at a very different place. Like, they will cry if Paul Hollywood tells them that their bake was perfect. Uh, And if they get the handshake, it is a thing to where all day they're, they're buzzing with what a compliment that really was. And I, I've noticed also if we get a compliment or someone encourages us that doesn't know us very well, it, it can mean something, it can be exciting, but it doesn't go deep. Imagine you put something on social media, someone says, oh, you're great, I love this stuff, whatever they're gonna say, it could be exciting in the moment, but the fact is that doesn't go very deep because we all say the same thing. They don't really know me. Or we say a very similar phrase, uh, if they only knew. And you might even come here to church thinking, if they only knew. If the people around me only knew uh, how I think, if they would have known my habits, if they knew what I did this week. And I find that there is uh, a connection, a real intimate connection, when the worst of us is known and we're still received. Human intimacy happens when the most offensive part of us is revealed and yet embraced at the same time. That's when... Um, a real intimate connection happens. We see God, he is the all-seeing judge. Nothing is hidden from him. All is seen. He, he knows what, what goes on in every corner of the world. There is nothing that is a secret from God. And yet he loves us and he accepts us. And I really think that is the power of the Christian story. If aliens landed on the world tomorrow and they said, what is the human religion? Statistically, it would be Christianity. It is the largest shared belief system in the world. It's the largest religion in the world. And we have to ask ourselves, what makes it so appealing? Most religions, they grow strictly by birth rate. Very small uh, conversion, what, we'd call, what they call proselytes, people converting. Islam largely grows because your children are Islamic and their children are Islamic and it grows this way. And while Christianity does grow primarily through birth rate, that one generation of Christians passes their faith to their children on to the next, Christianity has the highest proselytization rate in the world, the most converts. There's something so compelling about the story. And I think it's because each one of us desperately wants the worst of us to be known by one with incredibly high standards and still be embraced and still be accepted. Even if someone accepts you, but they're in the mud too, you're, you're plastered drunk, they're plastered drunk, and they accept you, to those, pers- to those persons, it can feel somewhat meaningful. But to be accepted by someone who has both feet planted firmly in the ground with with good character and upstanding lifestyle, and they accept you, it means something amazing. 
We want a God who sees everything, who knows everything, who is connected to us in every way, sees what we do, knows our habits, and still accepts us. And this is the story, a God of perilously high standards who sees all of you and paid for you to be clean and accepted because flaws revealed plus acceptance and affection equals intimacy, and that is what we want with God. So often around Thanksgiving, we do discuss the discipline, but I want to discuss something in particular this year, something to be grateful for. I want to read Psalms 139. We're going to read most of it today. We're starting verse 1. Uh, You search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it, Lord, completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and too lofty for me to attain. The knowledge that God has of us runs so much deeper than we think. The reality is God knows you better than you know yourself. Oftentimes when we dwell with God, we have moments where the Holy Spirit's speaking to us. Something that comes up is God trying to teach you about you. That he, that he knows our thoughts. He knows the things that are on our minds. He knows critically this, thoughts and motivations, because motivations is one of the things we're most confused with ourselves about. The level at which you do not know yourself often dwells with how much you don't understand motivations because you see, a person can do great things for a warped motivation. You could donate to the poor to get recognition and honor for giving to the poor. You could pray out loud in the prayer meeting because you want to be heard and you want to be perceived as spiritual. And some people, they do good actions and they find that the traps lie without and within. If you think that the darkness on the outside is the thing to be worried about, the darkness on the inside is is incredibly easy to become lost in. But God knows it. God knows your heart motivations. The things that you have put a check on, like I did a good thing today, he might know whether it was a good thing or not. He could see what happened on the inside of a person. This is one of the things that made um, particularly teachers of the law, priests, Pharisees, very uncomfortable with Jesus, is that Jesus could see the outside was fine, but the inside wasn't, and that made them extremely uncomfortable to know that the inside of them was flawed. God is aware of flaws and weak spots in your character that you won't discover for years. Verse 3, he says, it says that he, you, you know my, uh, you discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. God knows all your habits. He knows exactly um, that there's an amount of probably of milliliters of coffee you pour into your mug every day. And for some reason, your brain says, stop. You don't know what it is, but God knows to the milliliter how much that is. Christ said he knows that the count of hairs on your head. He knows all of your habits, the good ones and the bad ones. The ones that you've become habitually good at even hiding. His gaze is always on us, hemmed in before and behind, it says. You've hemmed me in before and behind. The perfect judge of heaven, he specializes in you. He wraps around. He knows everything about you. He is he's the one who could, who could give a TED Talk on your life better than you could. So what do we make of this? What does our psalmist make of this? What does he make of this tension of God's eyes are always on him? 
I read an interesting statistic the other day. The average American is photographed or recorded in video 75 times a day. This is traffic cams, security cameras in, in uh, different stores. Uh, it could be the ring doorbell that your car drives by 75 times a day, which comes to a total of you are either recorded or photographed 27,375 times a year. What do you make of that? How does that make you feel? I would imagine many of you feel like getting off the grid and going off and disappearing and those photographs will never be seen. Never another ring doorbell, never, never another traffic jam. And we find that this is a way that our psalmist feels this, this always viewing scrutiny. Uh, we don't even perceive how much you're being photographed. You don't perceive how much God sees you. And how does he feel about it? He continues on musing on this. And he says this in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I were to go to the heavens, you are there, obviously. If I were to make my bed in the depths, which could be grave or hell, because the word shale in Hebrew, which means grave, death, depths, uh, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. I read that and that term is a restricting term. Like, like Jonah trying to flee, he actually did try to flee to the far side of the sea. He tried to go to modern-day Spain, and he got trapped in by a storm. God wraps around. We try to get away. He's got us. Verse 11, uh, if I say, surely darkness will hide me, and light become night around me, even in dark, uh, excuse me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is light to you. What we find is we have a free will. God gave us a free will to, to choose. It's one of the things that makes us in the image of God. They're not programmed, forced, robotic beings. We have a free will, but that certainly doesn't seem to stop God from hemming us in. And that was hinted at at verse 3. You hem me in before and behind, being wrapped around like, almost like a, like a creature in a cage or a pen. It's set up, and you have so much space you can move in. God has a way of moving around us. The psalmist, he feels a little bit like he's a pet kept in a pen. And though he may flee from God, God has a way of finding him and bringing him home. But what we find is this. There is a giant difference between a bully grabbing onto your arms and not letting you go anywhere, and a father who holds onto the bike seat to keep it from tipping over as we're learning to ride a bike. There's a big difference between control and protection. His question being, what is God? Is he a tyrant judge over my life or is he a protective father? To the discerning, or to the undiscerning, I should say, protection and control can look very similar. They look very similar. Yet control sprouts out of fear and protection sprouts out of love and wisdom. That how we perceive the way that God sets boundaries on our life, confronts us, stops things from happening, how he's always over us, changes profoundly by what kind of God is this? What kind of figure is this? Which is why the rest of the psalm is so important. Verse 13, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place and woven together in the depths of the earth. 
your eyes saw my unformed body. All my days ordained for me, written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake, you are with me still. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to include that song today. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. As, as this psalmist ponders what kind of God is this, he goes into the fatherly prenatal protection of God, watching over his creation, growing them in the womb. We've seen God as the perfect judge who could see all and discern all, and now we see him as the perfect father, the image of a father who adores his son. And suddenly the whole psalm, it's, it's reinterpreted, changed up a bit. The God who sees us, who's familiar with all of our ways, who watches us, isn't watching for sake of judgment and destruction, but watches because he loves watching his kids. Suddenly the God that goes in before and behind us and hems us in is creating the boundary of protection for us. In the same way in the summertime, I put a fence in the front yard because my two-year-old is simply too stupid to not walk in front of a car. And I love that stupid little kid. So I put the fence in to protect her. In the same way, God creates boundaries and things to confront us, to keep us from going off the grid, to stop Jonah from giving up his life as a prophet of Yahweh, but to capture him in the sea and bring him back to his destiny and give him a second chance at it again. That God would capture us in and wrap us around. The guiding arm, the never-ending presence, the watchful eye are now all warm fatherly affection. I think of this, I think... It's important for us to remember that the greatest message of Christianity is that the Father loves us. That's the point. That's the meaning of it. We can miss the beautiful point of the gospel that Christ delivered us from death to the Father. It is to the Father. After salvation, after the cross, our relationship is with the Father. And because of Christ, we're made clean to where that perfect judge of ultimately high standards has seen us redeemed and paid for completely. Paul says that by the works of Christ, we get to call God Abba, Father, which I brought this up a couple weeks ago. It's worth highlighting again. To call God Abba a Hebrew word for dad that is similar to the English word dada. It's not even a word. It's a sound children make when they try to say the Hebrew word for father, to say Abba, father. That was a strictly Jesus thing. It was not recorded before that. Nobody said it. It was considered too intimate to say that about God, that we wouldn't call him dada God. That was, that was weird and offensive. And honestly, you're never going to hear me say it either. <laughs> I'll say it maybe in a prayer, Abba, Father. I will say Abba, Father, but I'm not going to say Daddy, God. I don't want you sweating in there. I don't like hearing it either. But the point is this. Through Christ, we have this connection with God that is close, that is intimate, that is connected, that is different. And it says that by him, by his works, we call God Abba, Father, adopted into him. Romans 8, 14 says this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you may fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you into your adoption of sonship that by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit of himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Christianity is not alone about the Son. It is about the Son who reconciles us to the Father in heaven to our Father. 
after we are saved, our home, it's with God, it's with our Father. Any spirit, anything that you hear, anything within you, anything in your mind that does not affirm that the Father loves you is not a spirit of God. God will say one thing, the Father loves you. The meaning of so much of Christ's teachings. The entire psalm has this sense of wait till your father gets home, which could mean a lot of things depending on what dad is like. Wait till your father gets home. What will he do after he's seen everything? What will he make of me? Jesus gave us this idea of what kind of father we have in heaven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who, receive, everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your sons ask for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I really think without faith in the Father's love for us, there is no intimacy with God without really having faith that we can be with him, that as we feel God's peering, we feel his guarding around us, are we going to flee? Are we going to try to get away as the psalmist was tempted to? Or are we going to accept that this is a God who is a father to me, who takes care of me, who watches over me? Like Adam, we can have a response that upon God's approach, we would flee and hide. Yet the book of Hebrews tells us that we should go before God's throne boldly because Christ sits at the right hand and his throne is grace and we've been given a way in to be with the Lord, to go boldly. When I go to my parents' house, I don't even knock on the door. I walk in like I still live there. It's not even, I've, li I've not lived there for over 10 years, but I would just walk right in. I go boldly because I figure I'm welcome. I, I wouldn't do that to your house. I wouldn't show up and just let myself in. If there's a difference with our family relationships. We are meant to go boldly before the Lord. Jesus told us to have confidence in God's love for us. Because of Christ's love, we are redeemed and we're brought to the Father. We're brought to, the, to be adopted by him that we could call him Abba. How deep the Father's love for you how vast beyond all measure that knowing every part of you, he gave his son to be your ransom. That's the point of, of, of the whole Christian gospel is that the father loves you so much that knowing everything, perceiving everything, knowing everything that you've done, will do, knowing the thoughts in your head, the wickedness in your heart that you yourself can't even see, that he saw you, loved you, cleansed you, and gave his own son for your redemption. Really, all Christian hope comes down to the Father must be good. We have to believe in the goodness of the Father to let your guard down and go to him. You know, I find that there's this, there's a few things that get in the way of our dwelling with God. One is your phone. Let's just call it for what it is. In 2023, our phones get in the way. They're loud, they beep, they're always with us, and we, we want to grab the little reward, like chemical, little colorful triangle in our pocket and flip through, scroll through, find stuff. That unending desire and drive is a problem. 
our tablets get in the way, the busyness of our lives get in the way. And I find this, that when you feel the conviction, you feel God simplifying your life to silence the phone, leave it someplace else. I've started a new practice. I actually, you, this, this sounds counterintuitive. I turned the ringer on. My ringer was off of my phone. I turned it on. And it could be because I remember in the 90s, the phone was in one place and it didn't move. And if it needed your attention, it would ring really loud. So that's what I do. It goes on top of the bookshelf. I can't even see the screen. And if it needs me, it'll let me know if someone's calling because uh, I do need to take calls. But I leave it there. And as we find ways of simplifying life, getting rid of things, quieting down, slowing down, and seeking solitude, I find something very interesting. Our God is a triune God, is he not? Holy Spirit, Father, Son, he is three in one. Just, and we are created in his image, body, soul, and spirit. We are also triune. I find that when you slow down, it's not just me, everybody I talk to, when they slow down and they're quiet and they go into the waiting place, they're not met with the Holy Spirit, they're not met with the Son, they're met with the Father. It's the Father that we find in the quiet place. It's the Father who we are with. And that reward is one of the richest things. Christ brought us for a purpose to bring us to the Father. After Paul summarizes in Romans 8 all of the amazing things God has done by giving his son, the father gave his son to redeem us. We are pure, we are clean. He wraps up that chapter saying this, what shall we say then about such wonderful things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up uh, for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with him. And who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and we are raised to, and, and, excuse me, and raised us to life. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything separate us from, the, from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As scriptures uh, say, for your sake, we were killed every day, and uh, we are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or earth below indeed. Nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has seen your absolute worst, present, past, in future, and nothing separates you from the love of the Father because that is the power of Christ's atonement. That is the power of the blood that we are made clean, that there is one of incredibly high standard, a judge who sees all. He does not say things are fine when they are not fine. Sin is a serious problem. It is incredibly destructive. It hurts other people. It hurts yourself. It matters to God deeply, and yet you've been atoned for and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of the Father. This is a love we can rely on, and that is the point. A question for us is, if we haven't paused lately to be with the Father, to really stop and be with our Father in heaven, it's time to do so. 
of all the things we could be grateful for in this season of thanks and gratitude, a very powerful season that begins our way into a sacred holiday season for us in the church. Be thankful for this, that your father loves you and wants to be with you. That the wait till your father gets home feeling that you feel, if it's fear, it's not of the Lord. It's a father who comes to you to deliver you, to lift you up, to make you clean, to be with you. He's the one that dwells with you in the secret place. As we get ready for the season ahead, it can, it can go by so quickly, can it not? Thanksgiving, all the other little holidays, the things we remember, uh, Santa Lucia Day, if you're Scandinavian, I don't know what else you've got. But they go by so quickly. Christmas goes by so quickly. But they're holidays that are meant for something. Holiday meaning holy day. It's not about all the little tasks that we worry about. It's about the meaning of it. And I would encourage you to make this a season that you find quiet space to dwell with the Father and get what Thanksgiving was really about, to get what Christmas was really about in the seasons that are ahead. Seek solitude with your heavenly Father to have peace in this season. We're going to be grateful for something this week. We'll be grateful for the gift of the Father who will never leave you. In your darkest hour, you can't shake him. There's no place you could go where you could outrun him. There's nothing that you could do that could outredeem him for the things that he would do to bring you back. The perfect father knows all your secrets. He knows everything that you've done, and he could not possibly love you more. Because he gave his best, everything else goes with it. If he gives you the son, he won't he give you also all things. So seek solitude during these sacred holidays and be with your father. Before we pray, I think it's worth noting that the gift of the Father is something that we get through salvation. You see, there is the guilt that we feel, feel inside of us that, that it would terrify you if you knew God in all reality was waiting for you in the lobby of this church. That sense of holy dread comes down to the, the reality that our spirit can perceive, that we are hopelessly lost. And God's standards were incredibly high and humanity has broken them, but God had a plan that his son would come in the flesh to take on the, the penalty that was all supposed to be ours, to die in our place that we could have his life. And that life redeems us. And because of that, the moment that we say yes to Jesus, that gift to be redeemed, that's the moment of adoption. That's when we become the fathers and we can say, Lord, Abba, Father, I rely on you. And so I want to give us an opportunity as we pray, we're going to bow our heads, close our eyes. Now we're going to pray. But if, if today's the day that you feel that this is your moment, this is when God called you to respond to that, to say, yes, Lord, to give your life to Christ, to receive the redemption of him paying your penalty for you. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. And uh, no calling out, nothing. we're just going to be uh, all praying together. But if that's you, as, and it's a sign of recognition, would you put your hand in the air and you can place it back down? I give a few moments for anybody to respond. This feeling, this call, like today is your day. What I'm going to do is we have some people that are making that wonderful decision today. And as we pray, I'm going to have all of us repeat after us. So if you, if you missed your hand-raising moment, I want you to know today is your day. And repeat with me. Jesus, I give you my life. And I ask that you would give me yours. Redeem me in your blood and lead me back to the Father. Amen. I'm going to pray for the rest of us. Now, Lord, I pray for those of us that we can forget. 
we can forget the incredible Father we have. That we don't relate with you as a judge. We don't relate with you as just the most perfect example. You are a loving Father who wishes to be with us, who wishes to dwell with us. Lord, I pray that we could remember what it's like to have your presence with us always. Help us to find you in the quiet place. Lord, I pray for those of us that have feared the Father because we feel that when, when, fa- when the Father comes home, when he comes to us, when he reveals himself, he is gonna have so many problems with what we've done. We felt your eye on us. We felt your perception of us. We know that you've seen the thoughts in our heads and we are too ashamed to come to the Father. Lord, I pray that you would restore our faith in the redemption of the Son, that we are clean and made clean, and that if we sat for just five minutes listening to the Father say to us everything he thought about us, we would be reduced to such a puddle of tears that it would take us years to stand up again. Lord, we, we just declare the truth of that song, how deep the Father is, his love is for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I pray that we could dwell with the Lord this week and for the holiday season ahead, that this would be the most meaningful holiday season we've ever experienced because we experienced it with a daily renewal with the Lord.